Welcome to our podcast, A Place Called Porch. I'm your host, Megan Zamora, and I invite you to kick back, relax, and enjoy the friendship, history, and stories of the Porch Band of Creek Indians. Lori Stinson is a modern-day woman warrior. She's a tribal member who also serves as the tribe's attorney general and chief legal officer. Not only is she an incredible advocate for the Porch Band of Creek Indians, she's an all-around wonderful person who I'm grateful to call my friend. And Lori, it is just such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Megan, for having me. Of course. So let's start with, um, you know, I know that back in the day, um, and first of all, I have known you for years now, and I was thinking about this last night. You know how you're just laying in bed and you have these random thoughts, and I'm like, okay, I'm trying to get mentally prepared for this Mm -hmm. time with Lori tomorrow, and um, I was like, when did I first meet Lori? And... I cannot remember a time when I didn't know you. Isn't that that's that crazy? So weird. Yes, um, because I didn't know you growing up. I didn't. I, I knew your cousins. But. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't actually know you. And I was like, you know, trying to place it in my mind, and I, I don't know. I don't either. It feels like we've each other forever. <laughs> it does. It does. Um, but I know that once upon a time, um, you worked in Enterprise. But how did you end up in Atmore? I grew up in Atmore. Okay. Um, I actually um, grew up here. My parents have lived in the same house since the day I was born. Um, you know, now I live across the street from them. But uh, when I met my husband in law school, we opened a practice and enterprise, but then I uh, only practiced there maybe three years before coming back home and uh, working for the tribe. Okay. Um, so what interests you? Okay, so you're growing up in Atmore. Um, and both, were both of your parents school teachers? Both of my parents were school teachers. Okay. They sure were. Um, and I've always heard your dad referred to as Coach Madison. He, he was, he quit coaching when I was born, I think. But before that, he coached baseball, basketball. And, um, then when we were born, he decided to get into tennis and he coached both me and my sister at tennis. And, uh, you know, now now he likes to follow all the grandkids playing basketball and softball and baseball. <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can't take the coach out of it. That's true. <laughs> um, so so what interested you in getting into law? I mean, both of your parents are teachers. Even your sister's a teacher. Yes. And so one would think, OK, the natural choice would be being a teacher. But you chose law. How did that happen? Uh, you're right on the rebel. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. So I start. Well, I was always interested in government and civics, and had one of the best, probably government teachers ever, Judy Branham at uh, Skimby Academy. And um, you know, she's had a lot of lawyers come through her classroom, okay, uh, including her daughter. Uh, but um, I, you know, when you grow up and you see lawyers on television, you think everybody's in a courtroom and I'm like, I didn't really want to do that. I'm not not one of those very aggressive, confrontational people. So I, I didn't think I didn't think I don't want to go into that. Mm-hmm. But then um like you said, my mom was a teacher. She was a business education teacher. Okay. So when I was in college, um a, a local attorney, um well actually it wasn't the local attorney at the time. There's Shirley Darby, she's an attorney at in town now, but um, at the time she was in law school. And so she called my mom and asked, was there anybody that she knew of that could type some law school notes for her? 
and uh, any of her students. And mom said, well, my daughter's home from college and she could do it. So um, I started typing her law school notes, which was just really fascinating. So I'm like sitting, it's basically attending a law school lecture, taking notes for someone. Um, So I thought it was really neat. And then from there, it kind of developed into like a part-time job uh, at Robert Maxwell's office um, and uh, got to type for them and file for them and kind of decided that there were other things to do other than being in a class in a, in a courtroom. So um, I, I decided that maybe I would give law school a shot. So and you did. I did. And you went to Faulkner. I went to Jones Law School yep. in Montgomery. I mm-hmm. sure did. Um, after I finished Sanford University for my bachelor's. So. Yep. And as they say, the rest is history. That's right. <laughs> so after you graduated from law school, um, did you go straight into the practice at Enterprise? We did, yes. So um, in a matter of maybe a week, a week, I got married, graduated from law school, was sworn into the bar, <laughs> did a honeymoon, <laughs> came back and opened an office. Oh, my gosh, Lord. <laughs> yes, did it all. Seriously, all in a week. In fact, we delayed our honeymoon so I could be sworn in. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's... <laughs> That gives me stress just thinking about that. Like all of my, you know, I feel like my stuff has been fairly spaced out. And um, as you and I both know, I had a bout with law school and that first year did me in, girl. It's rough. Yes. And I mean, I remember I would come to you and say, Lori, I don't. I just, I don't know if this is for me. And you're like, girl, if you're feeling that way, you best go on ahead and just... Uh, don't, don't get in too far. <laughs> don't, don't get in too deep, girl. <laughs> and that was some of the best advice because um, I kind of feel like if I had forced myself into that, it'd be like a round peg in a, in a square, square or a... Or square peg in a round hole. That's it. That's it. Well, I, you know, I had many of friends that went, like, got to that third year and said, this is not for me. But yet they had so much debt at that point. They were like, okay, well, I guess I'm stuck with this. Yeah. I got to, I got to pay off all these student loans <laughs> now. Right. I better just do something high paying for at least to get this. That's at least to pay those loans yeah. off. <laughs> um, so how did you end up? coming back and working for the tribe. So one day my, my uncle Jack had died and we were, um, all the cousins were home and uh, we were just kind of, we had kind of come to the reservation to do a few things. And um, Miss Billy McGee mentioned to me that uh, they were starting a legal department. And she told me that Venus McGee Prince was was back and that she was the one that was going to head it up. Of course, I grew up with Venus. Okay. We, dan- we danced together. That. I yeah, did so not know that. Terrace and I are the same age. Okay. We were actually in school together, like all through middle school, uh-huh. I think. And um, But uh, Venus, um, we all danced. So not as good a dancer as Venus. <laughs> <laughs> she but. just got a graceful body and movement anyway she did she's a few years older than than Terrace and I but still we all kind of in the same classes and you know we'd um be at the studio some together and so uh so I knew her from that so I picked up the phone and called her and said you know I heard you were starting a department she said she was and so when she opened it up I applied and uh her first attorneys that she hired were uh, me and Cody Williamson so I forgot Cody worked for the tribe to begin with. He sure did. That's so crazy, Lori. I mean, just 
how things come around full circle and who would have ever thought you know, back then, you guys dancing together mm-hmm. and then coming back and you both working, you know, in the legal department together. And then with yeah. Cody, now Cody's the CEO and president of CETA. Um, Veen yes. is over at um, uh, doing regulatory. Um, what is her title? It's VP yeah, of compliance. compliance yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, over at Wind Creek. And, of course, you're the attorney general here mm-hmm. at the tribe. Yep. Um, and. I can imagine that um, at least having all of that previous working experience together, you guys are just able to flow easily together. Yes, it's a it's a nice it's it's like old friends when you just pick up and you know where you left off. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the same kind of relationship. Yeah. You know, you can pick up the phone at any point in time and, and know what they're thinking and get right back in the groove. Yeah, and. And I think that also um, one thing that I have learned over the years is how important it is to network and how important those relationships are um, years later, too, Mm -hmm. in ways that you never would have even thought. But then it's like, okay, God, now I see why you place this person in my path. Now I see why we worked together back then. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. You just never know when that person comes back into your life again. That's right. That's right. So, um, word to the wise. (laughs) (laughs) Be nice to everyone because you never know. (laughs) You don't know who might be your boss one day. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, all right. So, Lori, now that you've been here back at the tribe, how long have you been? How long have you been working for the tribe? I started in 2007. Okay, so for I'm not a math person, uh, so do the do the math, somebody. It's <laughs> <laughs> 22, so that's like 15 ish years. Yeah, that's wow. Awesome. That sounds like a long time. It doesn't feel like it's been that long. <laughs> that's that's kind of wild, though, really. Um, because time really does fly when you're having fun. But I don't yeah. know how much fun you've been having as the AG. Well, it's always interesting. Yeah. No yeah. no two days are the same, I'm sure. Not a dull day. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Uh, I know that whenever people find out that um, I work for a tribe or that I'm a tribal member or that I have some sort of tribal affiliation, they're always like, oh, can I come and like, stab somebody on the tribe and get away with it or you know can i come on the reservation land and do xyz and get away with it so i know that you've probably heard a lot of misconceptions like that so i just kind of want to pause for a second and take give you this opportunity to clear up maybe some common misconceptions that you've heard over the years okay let's see well yes the reservation is not a haven for criminals (laughs) (laughs) the key to all things criminal is really jurisdiction and a lot of it depends on whether you're Indian or non-Indian. Um, but you, you can't, if you're a tribal member, you can't run to the reservation and say, I'm on the reservation. You can't arrest me because tribal police can arrest you. And then you can be extradited, just like you'd be extradited in, from a foreign country to the United States. You can be extradited from um, the reservation back to the state of Alabama. So, so I can't. So I can't do something felonious and then say, Base. That's right. You can't do that. You can't do that. Base. They, they can, they, we would arrest you. Now, we can't arrest you if you're a non-Indian, but state law follows non-Indians onto the reservation. Okay. So it's not like they can come here and hide 
either. It's, you know, and luckily we're cross deputized. So that means that we can arrest on behalf of the state. Okay. But uh, yeah, there, there's no haven here. Okay. That's, that's good to know. So anybody that's thinking of something not so nice, don't come here and do it. That's exactly (laughs) right. And of course, you know, all major crimes are still covered by the federal government too. So, you know, like murder, rape, all those things that you think of as being like extremely violent crimes Mm -hmm. that you could be prosecuted federally. Yeah, you're making me think of my days when I was really interested in law and order SVU heinous. (laughs) (laughs) All of the heinous crimes. Um, So are there any other misconceptions that you've heard of that you you kind of might want to that's probably the most common one that I have heard. I think criminal. Well, you know, I, I'll tell you one that I, I didn't realize before I started working here, which was I think I told one of our judges when I left Enterprise and said, you know, I'm going to go work for my tribe. And, you know, oh, it, it shouldn't be too, too terribly bad. I mean, that, we have immunity. So, you know, but you're not going to be sued a lot. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I was wrong about that one. <laughs> I feel like we are constantly playing defense. We are. We are. We are. There's only one time in our history I think we played offense. Yeah. For the most time, it's, it's we're on the defensive. Yeah. And there's always someone trying to find a way to attack um, our sovereignty. Yeah. And, you know, try to make us like every other government or every other, you know, every other city in the state of Alabama. When did you um, or have you seen an uptick in those types of uh, cases where we're having to play defense, was there a particular time period or year that you saw, oh man, we're really starting to see a lot of where we're having to play defense? So not so much now. I think the big uptick was probably between about 2000, well, when I, a little bit after I started here maybe, but probably after 2009, that's when you had Carcieri versus Salazar. So it probably hit us about, 2011, 12-ish, all the way through, um, actually through about 17, 18. I think after that, it kind of dropped off. But um, And also at that time, you know, we we, we already had the bingo hall since the um, late 80s. Right. And then when Creek Atmore had opened in 2009. Mm-hmm. And so do you think there's any correlation I, between? That probably had a lot to do with it, too, because, you know, uh, big, big buildings, big targets, uh, deep pockets. Anytime you have deep pockets, you're a. You're obviously a plaintiff's dream. Um, so, you know, anytime you have any little injury, you're going to be a, a big target. So, Lori, you mentioned Cartieri versus Salazar. Can you give us in layman's terms? And okay. I know <laughs> I know, I'm asking for a lot here. Uh, no, I know you can do it. Um, but can you explain to people why that case has been so significant for not just our tribe, not just the Porch Band of Creek Indians, but um, when you look across just the United States, this doesn't include Canada, Mm. we've got over 560 tribes that are federally recognized. It doesn't include state-recognized tribes. And this case has had so much impact on so many tribes. Mm -hmm. Can you help us understand why it's been so impactful? So it was a U.S. Supreme Court case, um, and it they didn't really interpret the phrase, but they they found that um, for a tribe to put land into lands into trust, 
that their eligibility hinged on these words, um, whether the tribe was now under federal jurisdiction. But yet they didn't define now under federal jurisdiction. So that's le- that that put a lot of tribes in limbo. Did that mean because the the particular law that they were talking about was passed in like 1932. So did now under federal jurisdiction mean they had to be under federal jurisdiction in 1932? Obviously we weren't recognized until 1984. Mm -hmm. Um, So what, what kind of connections to the federal government did you have to have to meet that now under federal jurisdiction um, definition? And they didn't really give anything mm-hmm. um so you've had like you've had solicitor generals over uh, our solicitor solicitor's office over the years um trying to uh to help define that through opinions etc but um because because there was that most people think that it means federal federally recognized uh-huh. and there is that gap between 32 and 84 a lot of people started to attack us saying mm-hmm. that our lands weren't in, weren't legitimately in trust because we weren't under federal jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's when you start having a lot of the, the really uh, monumental cases for the tribe, like um, state state of Alabama versus PCI gaming. um, Then uh, the tribe versus uh, the tax assessor. We had two tax assessors during that case. So, but yeah. yeah. Um, But yeah, those, those were all, that all hinged on whether our lands were truly in trust. And I think what's um, interesting about that is during the federal recognition process, so far as I understand, you know, as part of that process, and it's a very rigorous process, you have to show that, you know, you were tied to this area, lived as an Indian community, so on and so forth, which would cover, which would cover those years, right? You're exactly right. I mean, there are, there are thousands and thousands of pages. There were, you know, years and years and years of work that went into federal recognition that went into proving that this is, this wasn't just a upstart community in 1984, that it's been here, you know, for forever. You know, you know, we, as we know, you know, we were part of the Creek Confederacy. That's right. You know, our ancestors have been in Alabama for many, many, many years. Yeah. So I thank you for that, because I think that a lot of we've gotten so accustomed to Cartieri, Cartieri, Cartieri. And now, of course, the thing, the big thing is the Cartieri fix, which um, I am assuming that means we're trying to put some language in place that either uh, give some clear definition to what that means so that that language isn't so ambiguous that was put out in Cartieri versus Salazar? So um, it's not really necessarily defining what that now under federal jurisdiction means. Okay. Now under federal jurisdiction means it's more, um, so the fix was to keep prevent trials from facing things like we faced, okay. which is if you have, if, if you're recognized, you have lands in trust, they were taken into trust, legitimately taken into trust, not challenged at the time, because there's a way to challenge when lands are put into trust, Mm -hmm. but you can't do it years and years after. There's a statute of limitations, Mm -hmm. just like with anything else. Um, So anyway, it's basically say that those lands are legitimate, can't be challenged um, to try to keep people from having to face lawsuits like we did. Leave us alone. That's exactly right. Now, there are some other, you know, with all legislation, there are other things that people try to put in to things. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, 
to say that they, that these tribes can continue to take land into trust mm-hmm. because it's one of the things that's been um, a little bit unclear for tribes over the years is whether they can put future lands into trust. Mm-hmm. So um, it's trying to clear some of that up. And I think um, whenever you look at the legal process, you have to, it's all, I think it's always good to kind of look at both sides. Um, you can't just play defense or offense it's uh, really helpful to look at both sides and you don't want tribes to be um, able to exert so much immunity or sovereign immunity that they could get away with whatever. Like there, there have, there has to be some um, restrictions there, right? You know, um, so that if, if there's something that happens, if somebody, um, if, if the tribe legitimately did something wrong, um, you know, had an unsafe environment for a guest or something like that. Like there has to be a way for that guest to have recourse, right? Um, so you, there's got to be that checks and balances. Right. You know, you know, our tribe is um, enacted a tort claims ordinance, and and it did the, did that back in 2007. Like I think even before the Wind Creek opened, mm-hmm. um, had taken realizing that patrons would be coming in and the patrons could be injured and that, you know, there needed to be some type of recourse. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one of the great things about sovereignty is you make your own rules and you, you say, Hey, yes, you can sue me, but you have to sue me in my court, you know, following our processes. Um, and so the, the tribe had taken that into account, but that is one of the things that really, um, one of the things in the Wilts case that really, ended up uh, causing us problems and ended up making really bad law because um, while the tort claims ordinance did cover patrons, mm-hmm. it didn't cover those people that were injured off reservation. And that's, you you had a car accident off reservation involving an employee. And, and that was the thing that the Alabama Supreme Court hit on, that there was no relief. And, and, Ultimately, we changed the tort claims ordinance to provide that relief, mm-hmm. but it was too too late. Yeah, um, we were we were already you know got a very bad ruling for the Alabama Supreme Court. Mm. Yeah, and I was going to ask you if you could explain that, but what you did. So I appreciate I appreciate that um, explanation. We hear this term tribal sovereignty a lot, mm-hmm. and I've seen it explained in a lot of different ways. From a legal perspective, what is tribal sovereignty? It's basically taking control and being able to um, govern yourself. I mean, you know, it's making decisions about your land, um, making decisions about your people, making decisions what what laws will apply on your lands, what um, rules should be followed on your lands, what programs are offered to your people. It's... Uh, it kind of, you know, our motto, seeking prosperity and self-determination, it's really self-determination. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, mate, it's determining how you want your nation to look. Um, and and it's really gives a lot of uh, power to a tribe to, to determine how they want, how they want their nation to, to look. And uh, it allows it to function as a government. As a government, To have yes. that government-to-government relationship with the United States, yes. correct? Yes, and my And as I've, you know, done a lot of um, research for the chair um, for, like, presentations mm-hmm. and for her speaking opportunities and events to the audience, 
it's, you know, that's such a big fancy word. And it's like, how do you make people understand? And um, I have to say that we've had to really work with that to say, how can we make it make sense for people? And um, I think whenever you look at the history of tribes in general, it's also a way for us to say, here's here's how we can best provide for our people. Mm-hmm. Here's Here are the rules and the outline and the things that we can do to provide, you know, not just a here and a now, but to provide a future for our folks mm-hmm. too. And so it starts eating into here's how we are going to conduct business and here's how we're going to conduct gaming and mm-hmm. are we going to have gaming? gaming? Are we going to do businesses? And then, um, of course, all of the 8A companies and all that kind of stuff too. Mm-hmm. So it all um, ultimately, so far as I understand, it ties back to having that tribal sovereignty it does and and that's one of the unique things about tribal governments versus you know most governments don't run businesses Mm -hmm. most governments you know tax and that's the way they get funded and that's the way they run their programs and that's the way they run their departments and the services they offer to their citizens um you know that's not how we fund ourselves Mm -hmm. we fund ourselves through businesses that's right um you know gaming obviously being the most you know, profitable of those, mm-hmm. but we have lots of other, like you said, 8A businesses and businesses in the state and um, look for opportunities, ways to to fund the government because it's ultimately what all, what the, what, why you have the businesses and why you make the money is to ultimately fund programs and benefits and, and things for the tribe and tribal members. And have you seen um, in different uh, cases across the United States and and of course, understanding that just because, depending on the level that the case is at in other states, mm-hmm. it may or may not have you know any kind of impact on us, right? But have you seen a chipping away of tribal sovereignty since you've been attorney general? Oh yeah, they're always looking for ways um, to to chip away. I mean, honestly, the the Wilts case was is probably the biggest chink in the armor, especially for us. I mean, because it makes us unlike any other Indian tribe in, you know, the whole nation. Mm. We're the only one without sovereign immunity. Um, and, you know, while I understand the Alabama Supreme Court wanted to provide relief, it it was up to the tribe to determine how to provide that relief. And the tribe did. The tribe did amend that. The tribe did take matters into its own hands to, to provide the relief that, that it was missing um, before, but, you know, we're the, we're very unique in that we're the only ones that could be sued in the state court right now. I did not know that, Lori. I did not realize that. And I, I would imagine a lot of people don't understand that the implications of that case were so impact so far-reaching really it, well it's, it's definitely impactful for us i mean one of the reasons the u.s supreme court wouldn't hear it is because it was an outlier case because mm-hmm. we are the only one that mm-hmm. it's kind of like you know until more people have the same problem we're not going to hear it we're not going to hear it now and i uh, you know at the time i fully expected lots of other states to to jump on board they haven't jumped on board yet but i'm not going to say that they're not at yeah. some point in time other states will follow suit yeah uh, and they will use the the Alabama Supreme Court precedent as um, as reason as a as a to point to and to say that you know tribes don't deserve immunity. So the Wilkes case, 
is definitely one of those that's been, I would imagine, interesting, but one of those that kind of stands out in your in your memory is like this was a really impactful, important case for the tribe. Are there any other cases that stand out like that for you? Well, I, like a, the two I mentioned before, um, State of Alabama versus PCA Gaming. Um, that one went all the way to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, and uh, the 11th Circuit affirmed that the tribe's lands were in or in trust, properly Indian lands, prop, could be gained upon. Um, so that was really very important for us because, like you said, that was, you know, you were talking about how, you know, or some of these cases came along the same time as the the casino was built, but you got to also remember there were also raids happening in the state of Alabama at that time too. I forgot they were about that. they were shutting down other facilities, mm-hmm. so we were the, kind of like the only facility not being shut down. So this was their attempt to shut us That's down. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know that obviously that was a huge win. It was um, you know very important, and then I think. The tax assessor case, because like we said, we always are on the defense, and it's the one time we've been on the offensive. Mm-hmm. Um, the the tax assessor at the time, Jill Hildreth, threatened to uh, threatened to tax our trust lands, and of course, if land is in trust, is not is out of the state and local uh, taxing authorities' jurisdiction, and so we had to like I remember spending like hours on the phone with with a chair. In fact, it's funny because when I was preparing, like looking back at cases, mm-hmm. it, it's funny because you like remember, you remember where you are and what's going on. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's just strange. Yeah. Like I can remember where we were when we got the bad w- rulings and Wilkes and I can remember, you know, but on the tax assessor case, I remember my girl's dance. So they were headed to, we were headed to a dance competition. So uh-huh. I like spent hours on the phone with a chair, with outside counsel, like the whole ride over to Biloxi. I'm like, okay, do we do it? Do we do it? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, you know, we had, we had to pull the trigger, which yeah. was, you know, it was stressful because we never had to take the initiative. Yeah. Um, so we filed, we filed suit against the tax assessor mm-hmm. to pre- enjoin, but it's like prevent him from taxing um, the, the tribe. And eventually that went to the 11th circuit. And then um, the 11th circuit agreed lands were in trust, couldn't be taxed. And then a, a permanent injunction was issued. So there's a permanent order out there that tells Scambia County Taxing Authority, they cannot tax the tribe's trust lands. And can you explain why it is that they can't tax the tribe? I understand that we're trust land, but what is it that... There's a particular statute that says that if it's Indian lands that it can't be taxed. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it goes back to that sovereignty. It goes mm-hmm. back to the fact that um, anything... If the tribe and the tribe does have taxes, which is probably something that most people don't know. <laughs> That's one of those misconceptions I probably didn't, could have hit on earlier. And we didn't um, think about, well, but why don't we talk about that though? So, um, does the tribe pay taxes? The tribe does pay so, like employment taxes, the federal government. Um, we pay uh, income taxes on behalf of, you know, employees. Um, but we also, we have many, many, many acres of, uh, non-trust land, fee land that you pay property taxes on just like everybody else. Um, And then in addition to, uh, like we've got businesses that have to pay business privilege taxes that have to pay, um, you know, would have to pay whatever sales tax for wherever they're, whatever jurisdiction they're in, like 
think about the hotels, mm-hmm. lodging tax. Um, the the only ones that pay tax to the tribe are those that are lo- located on trust lands. Okay. So, um, like you still, if you stay at Wind Creek, mm-hmm. um, any of the Wind Creek uh, hotels, you will see a tax mm-hmm. on your bill, lodging tax, but it doesn't go to the county; it goes to the tribe. Okay. Mm-hmm. Same thing with like sales tax in, on reservation. Um, at like Wind Creek mm-hmm. or like your meals that you might have, you'll see a tax. Tax is paid to the tribe, not to the the state or local taxing authorities. Okay, that's very interesting. Thank you for sharing that, um, Lori. You are an individual that is constantly busy, yes. and you have two lovely daughters I who I adore. They are so precious. Cute. Um, and I love seeing all the pictures of them dancing and they're following somewhat in your footsteps I by dancing. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I was not a good dancer. <laughs> <laughs> but they are, they are wonderful dancers. They and, are. um, I really enjoyed seeing how well they, they they always just do so well at these competitions and they stuff. Do. And I don't know how they contort their little bodies into these impossible straight lines. Um, but you have two lovely daughters and, um, you know, you are the attorney general for the tribe. Mm-hmm. And how do how in the world do you do all the the dance, the softball, the you know, keeping up with everything that's going on with the tribe. And um, how do you do it, Lori? I don't know, because sometimes <laughs> I don't do it very well. <laughs> um, I, I'm very lucky to have two great parents that help me out a ton, Yeah. Um, which I could not, I couldn't handle all the back and forth and doing everything. In fact, um, I, talking about relationships that you make other places, mm-hmm. I was talking with a former law school um, classmate mm-hmm. last night because he's, because we're, we have uh, jobs now that intersect sometimes. Okay. Um, so, and he said, I, I remember your dad, you know, used to drive you up to, to some law school classes. And I said, yep, he still is my chauffeur. Yeah. And so now he's chauffeur and my kids are around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm glad he is. He's a former driver's ed teacher. Glad he's really good at driving. Yeah. Um, Thank God for daddies. That's right? exactly right. <laughs> but, you know, that and then I'm very lucky to have uh, the a tribal council and a tribal chair that understand um, and give me time with my family when I need time with my family. Yeah. And, you know, they, they know when I, I know when it's important and I'll spend time focusing on tribal stuff when I have to. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's, you know, that's so important, Lori, to have. Um, and I think even more so now than ever, because a lot of times, you know, things don't fit within that eight to five realm. That's exactly right. And especially depending on the type of work that you do, it just doesn't always fit easily into a little compartment. Um, mm-hmm. And things just naturally bleed over. They just do. Yep. And, uh, but I know that, um, and I know this from just personal experience working with you over the years, if it means, you know, taking your laptop home and cracking it open and working till 10 o'clock min- or getting up early the next morning to, review briefs and you know legal documents and this and that like you just have to do what you have to do you got to roll your sleeves up but um i 
I have learned, and I feel like you have too, that after a while, you have to pump the brakes a little bit and um, find balance and, and make sure that you're not always working that hard because you get burned out real easy, real quick. Yes, you do. Yeah. Yes, you do. Mm-hmm. So it's it's hard sometimes. It's very hard. It's, you know, it's very hard when you're trying to do, um, when you do have that family time set aside and something big comes up. Mm-hmm. But most of, I mean, my family is very good to recognize that, you know, I sometimes just say, stop, I'm having, to, you know, I'm working right now. In fact, yeah. I tell mine last night, she kept asking me a question. I said, having to work. Let me do this, and then I'll get to your question. <laughs> Mama needs a minute. That's right. <laughs> Only do one thing at a time. <laughs> Luckily for you, yours understand English really well, and um, they're real well behaved. <laughs> I have three puppies at home, and they, they don't. I mean, they might understand what I'm saying. Like they do get it, but they're not so well behaved sometimes. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> well, it's a lot easier when your yours are a little grown up. It's a little harder sure. when they were toddlers. <laughs> oh, I can't even imagine. I cannot even imagine. Um, so, Lori, I think I'll just end with this question. Uh, and one thing that we haven't really touched on is you're also a tribal member. So, given all of your experiences growing up in Atmore, being a tribal member, working for the tribe, being in business for yourself mm-hmm. for a time, what does it mean to you to be Porch Creek Indian? I think it means family. Um, you know, uh, like you mentioned before, a lot of us were related somewhere down the line, you know, but and a lot of us don't even recognize that we might be related. But But family is... You know, over the years, family is more than just blood relations or, you know, uh, related biologically. It's being there for people when things are tough. I mean, we have a shared history, a shared culture, and um, we really have a shared place that we want to go to. We want this we want this family to be there seven generations. I mean, you know, we want it to be. We're we're building things and putting things into place to to preserve the family, mm-hmm. to preserve that history and the culture, and so that um, and it, it you know families fight, yeah, families don't get along. That's true. <laughs> but when times are tough, families are there for each other. That's right. And, you know, it's it's like I can talk about my sister, but you can't talk about my sister. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's I mean I think that's what we have here is yeah. you know we can say things about each other. Don't when state taxes, you better not, you uh-huh. know, we're all going to come together and we're going to fight. That's right. So That's right. I I love that description it, because at the end of the day, I think you really hit the nail on the head. We are family at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Thick or thin, for better That's or right. worse, we're, we are family. Mm-hmm. And um, Lori, I just want to close out by saying that from one um, tribal member and um being a, a woman in leadership to another uh, woman in leadership that's also a tribal member. Like, I really admire you. And um, I have seen you over the years, how hard you work and how dedicated you are to the tribe. Um, you have been a mentor to me. I'm sure that you've been a mentor to a lot of people, male and female. But I can't tell you, um, whenever I think about the preservation of the tribe and sustaining the tribe and who we are. There is 
no one else that I can think of that I would want at, at the helm of our legal department okay. because um, I know that you, as a tribal member of this tribe, who better positioned to care for it and to look out for it and to um, be that uh, that keyboard warrior? Because I mean, you know. <laughs> We can't, uh, we can't go around, you know, with, uh, you know, bows and arrows and guns and, and all of that, like our mm-hmm. ancestors would have taken care of business That's back right. in the day. But this is how we're taking care of business now. And this is how we're fighting on behalf of our tribe. And um, you are a woman warrior, and I appreciate you. Well, thank you. That's so sweet of you. And thank you for having me, even though I was a little hesitant about doing this. <laughs> I've enjoyed our time together. Thank you, Lori. I have, too. I really appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of A Place Called Porch. Tune in next week where we interview Creek Indian Enterprise Development Authority's CFO, Chad Clink. If you're enjoying our content, please make sure you rate, review, and subscribe.